Hello and welcome to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Margent. International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women happens every year on the 25th of November. And this year, we have three very special guests on the podcast who are here to discuss the femicide pandemic. In 2020, we saw the tragic deaths of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman. And in 2021, we very sadly lost Sabina Nessa and Sarah Everard. As well as these murders, violence against women has intensified during COVID and has been referred to by the United Nations as a shadow pandemic. On the podcast, we have Dr. Bina Rajkumar, Dr. Saida Ali and Deepa Saeed. Bina is a consultant psychiatrist and psychotherapist who is passionate about working with women who have experienced complex trauma. Saida is the lead consultant forensic psychiatrist for Women's Secure Psychiatric Service in the northwest of England. Many of her patients have experienced sex-based violence. Deepa is a sexual harassment lawyer and violence against women and girls Vogue activist. This podcast contains discussions on sexual violence. So I would just really love it if you could all introduce yourself. Bina, could we start with you, please? Thank you, Ella. This podcast is such an important topical uh, conversation that we must have as a society. So I'm very uh, privileged to be a part of this podcast. I'm Bina. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and psychotherapist working for the National Health Service. As a consultant psychiatrist, I work in a high dependence ward uh, with women who have complex mental health problems, many of them who've experienced complex trauma. As a consultant psychotherapist, I work in the community with people who've experienced complex trauma. My interest in women's mental health stems from my own childhood. I was, I'd had a very uh, matriarchal upbringing. I was raised by my mother, who was a very powerful feminist. And so when I became a psychiatrist to become interested in women's mental health, just felt very normal, very organic. Thank you. Saida, could we please hear from you next? Just a little introduction and what's made you feel so passionate about this topic that we're talking about today? Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm Saida. I'm uh, the lead consultant forensic psychiatrist for one of the largest women's secure hospitals in Britain. And uh, obviously, I think you can tell I've got a Muslim name. I'm from a Muslim background. I am British, but there are really important issues that relate to violence against women and girls that are hugely important to many people from my background and particularly in my line of work I see the impact of a lot of this so it's something that I feel we really need to open up the conversation on. Thank you so much and Deepa could we please come to you as well? Hi there Ella, it was such a privilege to be invited to join this discussion. Um, I'm an employment solicitor uh, specialising in sexual harassment. Um, I work at a women's rights charity which gives free legal um, advice and support to women who have experienced VORG. Um, and we are a frontline service and we are uh, supporting women who are often having serious mental health complications and issues because of the violence that they've experienced. And so I am just so honoured to hear what Saida and Bina are going to say, because there's so much I think I could learn about this. 
just working in the VORG sector, you know, we're working with other charities and other women's organisations and other equalities organisations. And I think the sector has gone through a lot of trauma recently and more. I mean, we always do, but um, it's really important to have these conversations because I think we need to kind of reflect on how this is impacting us all and the women who we're supporting. So just really grateful to be here. And what led you to work in this area of law? Was there someone or something that happened that inspired you to specialise in this? I mean, I don't think it's a surprise to say, but a lot of women working in the Vogue sector have been affected by Vogue, by their friends or their family or them themselves. So that's why this topic is even more important, because we are all especially triggered by, you know, these events. So, yeah, I just say like anybody else, Vogue's touched my life and um, that's why I'm passionate about helping other women in similar situations. Saida, because we please start with you, how do violent attacks on women affect the mental health of these women? What happens to them? Violence against women and girls has a huge impact and it's not just on an individual woman, it's on the locality, the community. It's then having an impact more widely than that on, on society violence against women and girls is a pandemic it's something that we know occurs at high rates across the world women are the largest oppressed group of people on earth and there's there's plenty of evidence for that and this is not new i would specifically really raise the issues that i see every day working with my patients i would say possibly 99% of the women with whom i work in our psychiatric secure service have experienced trauma due to a form of violence against them at some point. Uh, the violence can take place at any time during the lifespan. So I also, as well as thinking about sort of ripple effects, you think from the moment a child is born, if that is a female child, that child could be at risk in different parts of the world of, of being terminated because it's a female fetus. From the minute she's then born, if she survives through all of that, a woman may be at risk, or sorry, a, a girl child rather may be at risk of all sorts of oppression. We, we know about female genital mutilation. That's that's quite a prominent issue at the moment. Um, you go through life having much different opportunities and expectations heaped upon you compared to if you are a boy child. There are patriarchal expectations, different roles, all sorts of things heaped upon women not just about sort of what we do every day, how we appear and essentially how we serve others. And I think that's one of the most difficult things is that the woman's role across the world or a girl's role as well has, has been defined by men in many cases as about serving another system. So whether it's just serving the man in the family with food, which is a very simple family level, to serving the patriarchy or serving capitalism by working for free a lot of the time. So, for example, raising the next generation of capitalist workers, you know, to pay for our pensions, essentially. So from the minute you are conceived as a, as a female child, you are going to experience some form of, uh, of, uh, of adversity. Uh, in comparison to men. Um, the women I work with who've experienced a lot of trauma, they, they have multiple mental health issues. Now this can lead to anxiety, loss of confidence and things grow and snowball from there. Many of the women who I, I look after have experienced severe depression. They're at increased risk of suicide. 
Some of them become so unwell that they become a risk to others. Trauma is known to be a contributory factor to psychosis as well. We've looked after a lot of women here who become a risk to their children or to other people. That's rare, but we get a lot of those women admitted to us. Post-traumatic stress disorder is increasingly recognised as a huge morbidity cause in this country and elsewhere. Further work's been done on that. We now know about complex PTSD. So this allows more for different types of trauma. So not just bodily harm, but also the slow burn of uh, coercion, of erosion of somebody's confidence, of their ability, of their rights, of their financial abilities, their ability to go out to work, all of these things, they sort of uh, coalesce and become a perfect storm of adversity for so many women. I think the starkest thing that I would I would like to end on really in, in, for that question is um, what really, really stood out for me was the rate of death of women due to intimate partner violence during lockdown. I think we know probably a woman dies probably every two to three days in this country and that rate increased during lockdown. The pandemic has disproportionately affected women and disproportionately led to increased violence against women and girls. And over this past year, we've had a devastating number of high profile deaths. Last year, we had Nicole Smallman, Bieber Henry. This year, recently, we've had Sabina Nessa and of course, Sarah Everard as well. How do you feel personally affected? On a personal level, I feel very shaken by it. And yet at the same time, it feels almost like it's not news. This has been going on for such a long time. It's interesting that now we have much more prominent news coverage of these things. But every single woman I know, I've done this. You, you, you are careful, you police yourself, you risk assess every man that you meet. Uh, however subtly, you know, we, we, meet, we meet people in every walk of life and we will be subtly as women risk assessing those men thinking, is this guy a creep? Is this guy a risk to me? We, we police what we wear we police where we walk. I'm not free to walk down a street around my home in the dark without flat shoes and making sure that I never have my hair in a ponytail and always having my key between my fingers and always making sure that my phone's fully charged, uh, being very careful about transport, that the freedom, the curtailment of freedom to which women sort of have to have to submit ourselves in order to stay alive is quite something. On a personal level, what really struck me was the disrespect shown to uh, Bieber Henry uh, by the very people who ought to have been looking after her and dealing in a respectful way following her death. I believe that some police officers took photographs of uh, her dead body with her afterwards. Thank you so much for that. And Bina, can we just go on to you next, please? How do you personally see the lives of women, the mental health of women, as affected by violence? Thank you, Ella. I want to agree with Saida that what lies at the heart of gender-based violence is the patriarchal narrative, a narrative that, that tells women you are not equal, you are less than us. It fosters gender equality. And gender-based violence and threats of violence or coercion intend to make women feel vulnerable and afraid and to feel a sense of shame. However, I'm very, very keen that we don't medicalize 
gender-based violence. Because if you look, there are so many women who experience gender-based violence. Everyone who experienced gender-based violence do not go on to develop mental health problems. It does affect one's sense of self, one's self-esteem, one's ability to trust people, one's ability to reach out for help, one's sense of confidence. It, even though all of this is affected, what we uh, do not see is that, uh, what we do see is that people are good at women, are good at um, you know, when women have good supportive social structures, when they have good protective factors like good early attachments, we know that they can reach out for help, they can connect with others, they can heal through connecting with others, connecting with other survivors, changing their narrative to a more empowered narrative, healing through connection, spirituality, and uh, meditation, dancing, exercise, body work, this does happen. However, as, as Saida said, violence, gender-based violence has a devastating impact on women and women can go on to develop mental health problems. If we look at domestic violence, we've had the landmark study, the Birmingham study by Chandan et al, which showed that women who experience domestic violence have a threefold risk of increasing mental health problems. This includes anxiety, PTSD, depression, and serious mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar affective disorder. As uh, Saida said, we know that there is a link between gender-based violence and trauma and uh, serious mental illnesses, psychosis, and so on. The intersectionality issue is very important, Ela, as we, and as we know, I think Saida touched on that. Women from lower socioeconomic groups, from ethnic minority groups, are especially vulnerable to not reaching out for help and importantly not feeling that mental health support that they get within mainstream services uh, can cater for their needs. And we also must think about the experience of abuse and addictions. They are very linked. It makes people sometimes want to drink or do drugs just to get through the day. And when women have substance misuse and alcohol-related problems, we it it has they, they experience more shame and uh, more stigma. And I think one thing that we must really recognize is the young women between the ages of 16 and 24. The Psychiatry Morbidity Survey has clearly shown that there is an increased risk of mental health problems among this group of people. This group of young women are especially vulnerable. Remember, they are very tech savvy. They are very, they are an online generation and they are at a risk of developing, um, you know, we know that one in seven women between the ages of 16 to 24 experience online abuse, which includes threats to show intimate 
videos and photos, 90% of young girls are sent unsolicited sexual pictures and videos. And if we look at this group of young women, we've, we see an increased rates of mental illness. One in seven of uh, young women between the ages of 16 to 24 go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And if we compare, this is around four times higher rates when compared with the prevalence of mental illness amongst young men of the same age group. So yes, I think the, you know, gender-based gender violence has a devastating impact on, on women. Thank you, Bina. That was beautifully spoken and I'm so grateful that you were able to involve statistics in that to reinforce what you're saying. Deepa, has anything that Saida and Bina said resonated with you? Yes, absolutely. Just to, you know, to add to what everyone said already, which has been so powerful, you know, my, my work is based in, in the workplace. Um, I think just a sort of really important point to make is that women experience violence in every single setting that they are in, whether it is the school, the university, the workplace, at home, walking down the street. Um, what's really struck me in my work is just that um, I don't think sexual harassment even covers it. I don't think that should be what it's called. I think it, it should just be called sexual violence, abuse and harassment just in the workplace, because a lot of what we're dealing with are women who um, they are experiencing um, relationships which are based on power and control um, and they are abusive and that person might not be their intimate partner but they certainly hold financial power over them um, and it can be very difficult to escape that kind of situation if you are financially dependent on that job. I think one of the things that struck me most when the pandemic started because obviously we're like thinking oh goodness everyone's working from home you know is there going to be a sexual harassment at work place problem anymore <laughs> and what you know what we came to find is actually the people the perpetrators who har were harassing them they weren't stopping just because there was a pandemic you know they were finding other ways to to get to them so whether that was through their social media they were they were finding their personal details out you know from they're getting up their old CVs and their old databases to find their personal contacts. And we had women telling us that the perpetrator was turning up at their houses. And these people are very clever. They're very committed to their, if they want to harass or kind of um, do that to a woman, you know, they'll be very committed to do that. So I think that's the other thing. The only thing, other, not the only other thing I'd like to say, the other thing I'd say, we are trying, you know, our mission is to help women seek access you know access justice from perpetrators who have you know committed um harassment or other criminal offenses or other civil offenses against them and um, but we are expecting those women to do that within an extraordinarily short period of time so in my particular area women have to bring a claim within three months of the harassment and um that does not obviously encompass the serious mental health implications of what they are going through. Um, we published data from our first year and for our first year of, of giving advice on this advice line, free legal advice to women who've been sexually harassed in the workplace, and 
30% of all our callers had actually been signed off sick from work. So that gives you, I mean, it doesn't, that number doesn't really sort of give you the full picture, but it, it gives you a sort of the small number we were dealing with at that time. Such a high number of it were actually being signed off sick from work because of the the stress, the depression, the PTSD, the, the simpler in, simple inability to, to be able to do their work anymore just made it you know physically kind of impossible for them to operate in the workplace um and all at the same time we're expecting these people to start to trigger a legal process um and if you don't do that within three months then you can't have access to justice i'm afraid there's been a really important campaign recently um to get the time limit for common assault extended from six months to 24 months which still is not enough time You've got sort of serious problems within the legal, the legal and the justice system as well in terms of where these people can look for support. And a lot of those times that that experience is really re-traumatizing to them um, in a completely new way. It's another sort of it's another form of violence, really, that they experience at the hands of state inst institutions, often at the hands of men, police officers. Um, uh, people within the criminal justice system, uh, judges, um, people who don't understand these issues, they don't understand the kind of um, the fundamental facts about violence against women. But I'm thinking particularly domestic abuse and, and sexual violence, you know, rape myths, those kinds of things are really pervasive in um, every kind of uh, part of society. Um, and those women, you know, they're struggling to be believed, you know, they're struggling to be believed, let alone ever access um, justice. So we've got really, really, really big problems here. Um, it's very difficult to get women the access to the support and services that they need. Um, the Vogue sector, for example, has been, um, it has experienced level of cuts, which is unprecedented you know the Vogue sector is chronically underfunded for years and, and given how we've spoken all at length about the the size of the problem of gender-based violence um it's just sort of incredible that it's still so poorly funded um in terms of getting these women access to the support they, that they need I think there was a there was a really interesting report that the Home Office did, I think it was in 2019, saying that domestic abuse cost the economy £66 billion a year just in terms of uh, women needing to access, you know, the criminal justice system, the mental, the NHS, you know, the list goes on and on. But it, so it boggles my mind that really, you know, you should be funding money into prevention because you're saving money in the long term. You're obviously hopefully making a dent in this huge problem, which is gender based violence. Um, but we're still struggling to be heard. So I think what's really interesting about all this media coverage recently, um, everyone always asks me, why do you think this is? And it's, you know, it's probably multiple reasons. I think in my sort of experience, I think there are just more women working in journalism. Um, so they want to cover this. And I often ask journalists, I'm like, you know, how many how many men work in your team? And I find that they, you know, they will be the ones who will be driven to kind of cover these stories. So that's really good. But then, you know, I don't often get we don't often get men calling us um, who want to cover the story. 
you know, so you know, it normally takes a tenacious sort of junior woman journalist to, to, to kind of want to cover these stories. But I think as well, we've got to remember that um, every death, every act of violence is, is a tragedy. It's not measured by how much media coverage it gets. Um, and we and I think we all know why um, Sarah Everhard got more media coverage than Bieber and Nicole Smallman. Yeah, I think what we need to do is start start going a bit deeper and thinking about how we value women's lives just more in general, but um, how we are ordering those lives as well in terms of importance that black and brown women just are worth less. Thank you for that, Deba. Bina, could I hear from you, please? Hi, Ella, thank you. It was just exactly the, that point that I wanted to pick up from what Deba was saying. It's such an important point because I think we have to have a radical shift in the narrative, in the global narrative about this topic. It's about time we stop this victim shaming and victim blaming and saying that something's wrong with a woman. This is a humanitarian crisis. As, as Deepa said, this gender-based violence is a humanitarian crisis. I'm sorry, I keep going back to stats. A woman dies at the hands of a man every three days. Yeah, And 60% of these deaths are by someone who she's been a current partner or a previous partner. Women, yes, we're not saying that men don't experience violence. Men experience domestic violence, but men experience sexual violence. It does happen. But women who have higher rates of domestic violence and higher rates of repeated victimization and are more likely to experience serious harm or death as a result of the violence. In UK, one in four, as, as Deepa said, it doesn't matter which walk of life you are from, it doesn't matter where you are. In UK, one in four women will experience domestic abuse and one in five will experience sexual assault during her lifetime. And sexual violence in the year March 2020, 84% of the sexual violence, sexual violence victims were women. And 50% of the women who experienced sexual violence reported to the police. So only 15% reported to the police. 5.7% of those reported cases actually lead to convictions. In January 2021, a YouGov poll showed that 97% of women aged 18 to 24 uh, experienced um, you know, sexual harassment in public places, in a public space. That, how much? 94%. 97% of women aged between 18 to 24 and 70% of women of all ages experience sexual harassment in public space. Out of these, only 95% did not report it at all. So this statistic shows that this is such a common problem and women don't feel safe and more importantly, women feel that they can't report it because their voice will not be heard. I think uh, the Sarah Everard case is really, really important because it's it's sparked, it's shown the spotlight on gender-based violence, but it's also, it was the perpetrator, the perpetrator was a policeman. 
and a policeman who, um, if you look at what happened prior to the murder, he flashed women. In his police force, he was apparently called the rapist. But this was not picked up. This wasn't vetted. This makes us think about this incident and think about him not as a, as a single rotten apple, but think about something that's systemically wrong. And I think what is positive about the Sarah Everard story is collectively women have in our psyche and our psychic collective consciousness, we've experienced a lot of fear, we've experienced a lot of shame, but now we are experiencing anger. And I think the narrative is uh, to exp express that anger and say, stop this. This is a collective issue. Shine the spotlight on the perpetrators and let's and change the narrative to what can we all do? What can men do to keep women safe? We want men to be with us on this journey, you know, to challenge any conversation that promotes gender inequality in locker rooms and so on. We want, we want this to be a systemic effort, just like how the COVID-19 is a pandemic. This is a shadow pandemic. And we want everyone to recognize this as a universal humanitarian crisis and to rise up and play their role in addressing the gender-based violence. There is such a thing as the socially acceptable victim. There is more of an outcry if the victim is looks like us or sounds like us. We've got to challenge this. So women of color, women who, who uh, make different choices to us, women who are, um, say, uh, sexual workers, women who have problems with substance misuse, you know, it's it's not okay for us to see the violence based, to the violence that happens to them as somehow it's less of a problem and look the other way. No, it is everybody, every woman's universal human right to feel safe. And that has to be honored for every woman, irrespective of your background or what you do. We have a right to feel safe and to be safe. Saida, you put your hand up next. I would absolutely love to hear what you have to say. Well, I just want to say thank you very much to both Deba, whose um, information there was absolutely eye-watering and also eye-opening, and also to Bina for what she's described as well, much of which I agree with. I just wanted to raise a point about the idea of co-opting men into fighting for women's rights. I feel really strongly that, yes, that would be lovely, but is the patriarchy really going to fight itself? When you are part of a system that benefits you, the motivation usually isn't there, which is why patriarchy and misogyny have lasted so long. They are hand in hand because one can't exist really without the other. So I think that the other thing that I wanted to, to raise really was it's very easy to despair, but it's OK to despair. And then you have to move and then you have to decide you're going to take some action. But the actions that are required feel so big right now. That's what is also a source of despair. We have to look at poverty and make sure that women don't live in poverty because that increases their risk of, of violence being perpetrated against them. We have to look very closely at education 
there's a reason why the Taliban have not allowed women to be educated or girls to be educated for probably, I think it's about 50 days now or something like that. They don't want women educated. They don't want women to know that they have rights according to their own religion. Why would they want that? So education is hugely important and it's not just of women, it is of men and boys. And it starts in the home with how we raise our sons, how our husbands speak with us, how uh, the men we know challenge each other instead of colluding. As Bina said, locker room talk, it's not acceptable. It's one of those Petri dishes where the mould and the, uh, the fungus of misogyny just grows. So we've got to go wider, and, uh, but also look at ourselves at the same time. Wherever corruption starts, it's because an individual is corrupt or wrong, isn't it? And we have to look deep into ourselves to make sure, what am I doing as an, indiv as an individual to... Uh, to, to challenge this. And that, I think, is actually harder in some ways than persuading big government or big companies or bigger organisations in some ways of what is right, because it starts with your own personal values. And I, I think that's something that many people probably don't want to take a look into that mirror and see the reflection. I think that's something that's really hard. So we've got to look at we've got to look at justice, we've got to look at health, we've got to look at poverty. There are so many ways that we can we can take some action, but ultimately you've got to start with yourself uh, and with educating yourself. Deepa, I can see your hand up and I saw you responding very enthusiastically. Yeah, no, I was on mute, but I was like nodding my head furiously because um, that is exactly it. But just to, just to go back to, to Wayne Cousins as well, um, uh, it did not surprise me at all that this person was a problematic person in the workplace. He had he was on a WhatsApp group where they would, you know, him and the colleagues would send um, misogynistic texts to each other. He was called nicknamed the rapist. Right. And it's long occurred to me doing this work in the workplace that these individuals, right, these individuals, these perpetrators who have such a clear problem with women, and there's no research done on this, right? This is the other problem, that there's just not enough work that's been done on gender-based violence to understand. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that these are the same people who are, are in domestic abuse relationships at home. And then they come into work and they, they treat the women they work with appallingly too. Um, I think all of these things are connected. I think these people have had a long history normally of their, of their behaviour, just like Wayne Cousins you know, it's a perfect example of that, the flashing and the way that it escalates, it escalates, it escalates into murder, right? And it's, I think that's, just, that's true of all perpetrators, they have usually got a period, um, you know, a specific pattern of behaviour. So when women come forward about things that are happening in the workplace, which are, you know, quote unquote banter and, you know, seen as sort of smaller things, I do, I do worry about what is that person going to go on to commit what are they they look at what they're getting away with now it is really worrying and i think god if if they all knew that he was called the, the rapist um and they all knew that this guy had a sort of history and a pattern of and you know sort of was well known all these perpetrators are always well known for their behavior as well and it becomes sort of open secret if somebody had just got in there sooner and kind of given this guy some kind of consequence for his behavior you know who knows so it does really worry me because I think there is not there it's not sort of tackled as a holistic problem when really these should be you know major red flags and just to say about what you were saying Saida about 
you know, when we talk about prevention, right, we're still having these painful conversations about rape alarms and um, CCTV and um, those, you know, all of that, it's too late. It's way too late. What you need to do is make sure women are not in that vulnerable position in the first place where they can be um, exploited. And I think that starts completely fundamentally starts with uh, inequality, gender inequality and the fact that women are just by definition of the patriarchy, we have to be in a subordinate position and that and that is only possible if we have access to less money and um, health care and less rights, right? We don't have the same amount of rights. That's what the whole women's rights movement is about, right? I've spoken to plenty of police women who are working in police forces and they experience harassment, sexual violence um, at the hands of other police officers. And um, so often they, you know, they say that these organisations will close ranks, you know, they protect each other because it suits them to protect each other. And, and they're able to do that. And so the violence just carries on perpetrated and being perpetrated. And I think people find it very upsetting to kind of say, you know, well, you know, maybe the police is in, institutionally misogynistic. I think we still really want to reject that. But as long as we have like total reverence for these organisations, it's going to be really difficult for those women to ever access justice or ever perpetrators to ever be to be found it was like it was what you were saying Bina about those st statistics so important when we talk about statistics to remember that barely any women are reporting so those statistics are just a tiny fraction of it and they're already appalling imagine if every woman actually came forward every single time she experienced war I mean the statistics would be I mean they're already eye-watering I didn't even know what um I don't even know what to say. And I think another really important thing to point out is that women don't just experience VORG once in their lifetime. A lot of the women I support, you know, if they're experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace, they might be specific, like especially triggered because they've experienced domestic abuse from their husband because they were raped or assaulted when they were a teenager. So when they experience VORG again, it's bringing back all those other previous experiences of VORG. And every woman just kind of has to accumulate that and carry that around in their body and in their person for the entirety of their life. And I think there's still a lot of disbelief that, oh, you could be assaulted more than once in your life. We're still sort of struggling to um, to understand that because we we uh, cling to these kind of myths that, you know, nothing that bad could happen to you twice when um, that's not true. We've touched a little bit on how the deaths of Nicole Smallman, Bieber Henry, Sabine Nessa and Sarah Everard have personally affected us as women. But how is the mental health of women affected by things that happen to other women, not just to them? I think individually, as Saida and uh, Deepas pointed out, it, it does raise a sense of, I think, hopelessness. Because look at the perpetrator Neverard, Sarah Everard's case. It was a policeman. Look at what uh, Nicole Smallman's and Biba Henry's, you know, how the police reacted. They took selfies for 36 hours. There's a poor response. So I think there's a sense of helplessness and a sense of, uh, you know, a sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness. But again, I, I want, I'm possibly sounding optimistic because, 
you know, my psyche can only bear so much of pessimism. So I feel there's also that collective anger and that collective rage that women are, have experienced and, uh, and are expressing that says enough, stop this narrative, stop the victim shaming and victim blaming. Let's shine the spotlight on the perpetrator. Let's look at what men need to do to keep women safe. Could I just respond very quickly to the very, very important point that Saida raised, which I completely understand that skepticism towards my call for men to join us in the battle to say, well, you know, what lies at the heart of gender based violence is patriarchy. And, you know, gender based violence perpetuates the patriarchy. And of course, why would somebody want to? dismantle something that uh, gives them power. I, I completely understand that. But if you look at the root cause of patriarchy, it is it the whole, you know it's it starts from childhood. It's very damaging for men too. And it starts with little boys, it, the messages that we give little boys in our homes and schools. It starts with men, you know, adult men. Uh, not colluding with the system, but challenging it in locker rooms and and in work places of work when they uh, hear this uh, patriarchal conversations. Deepa, can we come to you? Which gender stereotypes do you think perpetuate violence against women? If you could, po if you could possibly sum that up. I feel sympathetic to what Bina is saying, although I agree with Saida as well, like men are not going to dismantle their own power structure. That's why it's there. But um, I do think violence against women is rooted in a kind of um, a sense of insecurity in men and a need to assert dominance because they feel not dominant enough, I guess. Um, and I don't know exactly what the reason for that is, but um, women are always the target because we are we are fundamentally lower and weaker, um, and that's I think that's why gender-based violence kind of perpetuates because there's always and I think that's that's really interesting about street harassment or for public sexual harassment I should say it's such a, an immediate instant way that you can humiliate and dominate someone and they never do it you know they're not doing it to men they're doing it to women because they are a susceptible target very unlikely to fight back the the risk of danger is there i think that's true of all gender-based violence isn't it that's why it's gendered because when we look at perpetrators usually they are not treating other people like that they're not randomly treating people like that in the home or in the workplace or on the street they are specifically doing that to um women and i think that's what people struggle to understand because when we talk about i found i i found having conversations with men particularly about what happened after sabina nessa was oh you know that's just a random lunatic right that would that would never actually happen because the presumption is that these are freak attacks, that these, there's no pattern, that there's no um, there's no rhyme or reason. You know, it could just that the, there is a risk, you know, and that's what they were trying to. That's what you know the police were trying to do after Sarah Everard. They were trying to minimize it. You know, this is very rare. This wouldn't um, happen. 
but I think we're still kind of yeah we're still in that stranger danger place where you know it it's so unlikely to stop happening and we were being I think you would so exactly what you said Pina there was collective righteous rage we were being treated like we were being hysterical again just look at how the Sarah Everard vigil was policed right the it was so disproportionate the the fact that women couldn't come together and mourn kind of peacefully and it turned it into a completely violent scene when it didn't have to be we need to just be very very organized and clever in how we are responding to these proposed solutions so i don't know if you saw the the met the met put out um a statement saying that women should wave down a bus we all know how ridiculous that is in so many different ways, but we um, we've got to kind of put that pressure up and kind of say, look, this this kind of response is not good enough, um, and we're not gonna. This isn't gonna be enough anymore. We're going to you're going to have to look at yourselves really properly. Um, so there has been a bit of pressure, you know. There's there's been a, they're going to do an inquiry. The Met's going to do a kind of more informal inquiry, not a statutory inquiry, but into looking at how Wayne Cousins was recruited and how there might be similar problems in the um, in terms of their vetting process. But, you know, we've had inquiries before, we've had reports before. It was back off, you know, when Stephen Lawrence was murdered, um, the McPherson report, you know, concluded that the police were institutionally racist. And I think it's about time that we have some report, about, you know, acknowledging the institutional misogyny inside the police as well. And Saida, I'd like to come to you next, please, because you work with women every single day. What do you feel mental health services could do to better support women who are impacted by violence? I, I think there are many, many aspects because mental health is that the motto of the college of the Royal College of Psychiatrists is there is no health without mental health. And it's quite right. This is a big job. So I think that we have to start from the very roots of, of psychiatry. If you think about even the basic classification system that we use for mental disorder, that's altered so much during the 20th and 21st centuries. Women's issues are being recognised. We now look at PTSD and complex PTSD will be more widely accepted and understood in the uh, new iteration of our basic uh, classification system of mental and behavioural disorders. I think that's hugely important. So we have to also look at um, making sure that we've got very specialised services for women. My experience of treating women patients is it's very different from looking after male patients. My female patients all have a completely different social role. They are often mothers, sisters, daughters. They have caring responsibilities. They have had responsibility for so much in their lives. All of these are great stressors, which are uh, issues that will make it more challenging to get them on, back on an even keel, back to the level of functioning that we expect of a woman. We don't actually expect the same of male patients. They don't hold the same social role. When I worked in male services, interestingly, it would be for the more unusual male offender with a serious mental illness who, who would have visits, say, from their mum. We do find that with our women patients, they've got an entire family, an entire social network and ecosystem around them. Everything is different 
the role of a woman is so different and it's reflected in how we have to care for our women. So we need more resources. We need to alter the, the, the amount of services that we've got for them. We need to make sure that services are accessible. Women may not be able to leave a home in order to access the help that they need. They're much more likely to be hurting themselves than hurting other people and attracting attention um, from various other services such as the criminal justice service or system. So I, I think it's such a big question. We need more research, we need more data. There has to be motivation to collect all of this. I mean, something that really shocks me is that the hospital I work in, um, we have many surrounding hospitals with, with so few beds for women. Even the newest hospital uh, close by in my region built a tiny number of beds for women inpatients. I was shocked. So out of 123 beds, I think perhaps 18 were for women. That to me is quite shocking. That to me says we're just not going to go there with looking after women because it's expensive and it's challenging and it's different from the psychiatry of men that we're taught at medical school and all the way through our training. And so we're not going to go there. Also, what Deba and Bina said about the impact of female psychiatric morbidity on the economy and the country in financial terms as well as social terms, that should be something that motivates those who allocate resources to ensure that resources are adequate at the very least. It seems to be something that, you know, well, it's women, so it doesn't really matter. I just want to very, very quickly just respond as well to um, your question earlier about the impact of the, the deaths that we've spoken about. Very quickly, how did I feel? Bloody angry, but also very energised. We're not going to take this anymore. Uh, I spoke to male colleagues about these deaths and nearly all of them said it's not all men. And my response to all of them was, well, it's too many men, isn't it? It's too many men. So they were quite quick to try and wriggle out of having any responsibility for being part of the culture that perpetuates what results eventually in the death of innocent women. This is not acceptable. The other thing that I just want to raise as well is all of these systems, even if they say they're gender neutral, whether they are the law, health, they are man-made. The word that I think is important there is they are man-made. So we have to look at tailoring everything that we offer specifically towards women, particularly in mental health. Bina, please can we come to you next? I want to know what you think mental health services could do. Saida said earlier that women have an entire ecosystem around them. Is this something that you've seen in your female patients as well? Um, thank you, Saida. Beautiful points that I completely agree with. Like Saida, I work in a women's service too. I've worked, I've spent my entire career working with women as a psychiatrist. And I think the uh, Women's Mental Health Task Force report is very, very, very crucial. I completely agree with the uh, report. It showed that women have a higher experience of trauma and a higher way of expressing that trauma. Yeah. But our services in mental health are not uh, built. They are very, uh, as Saida said, gender neutral, and they are not tailored for the needs of these women. So our services have to be gender sensitive, trauma informed approaches. We have to take trauma informed approach with across the country with our services, and it has to be gender sensitive. 
that is absolutely key. And I will push this till my last breath. It sounds dramatic. Why is this so important? Because when we have somebody who's experienced gendered uh, violence, gender-based violence, and they also have a mental illness, let's say depression. And if we as psychiatrists are just focusing on the depression, what message are we giving them? We are giving them the message that the, the trauma is invisible. What the perpetrator did to the women was, you know, is not seen. It's not heard. And we are saying we're giving them the message that something is wrong with you and you need to be treated. It's very, very important that we are very clear about this narrative and we change that narrative. So trauma-informed approaches help us to change that narrative in, in moving from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So for us, as a, a trauma-informed approach is looking at the trauma, keeping it center stage. I think there are amazing voluntary sector services out there who do excellent uh, domestic violence outreach advocacy service, who help you know with housing, finances, looking at all those issues alongside the mental health issues is very, very important. So us co-working and us taking a systemic approach and working alongside other agencies and keeping important issues like safeguarding, advocacy, all that at the heart of our care is very, very important. So I think we really need to commission these services and work alongside them. Trauma-informed, gender-specific uh, care in mental health services has to be a, a way forward. Otherwise, we are re-traumatizing our women. And we are uh, adding to the narrative that something's wrong with you. We are increasing their sense of shame, increasing their sense of threat, increasing their sense of isolation. That's just absolutely not acceptable. Thank you so much, Bina. Thank you for that. That was amazing. And Deepa, something that I, something that really struck me early on in the conversation that we had was that you give free advice to women who have been sexually harassed in the workplace. These women also probably will need to access mental health services. And it can be very overwhelming for someone in such a vulnerable position to be seeking support from several different services. Mm -hmm. um, let me just add to what Bina was saying. This is what you said about stop asking what's wrong with you and what happened. This is so fundamental because we, especially the women I work with, when they do have a um, they have a resulting mental health issue from the harassment and discrimination that they have had happen to them. Um, as soon as they are diagnosed with anything, it's so easy to kind of gaslight that person and act like their memory cannot be trusted when we're when we are trying to support them through workplace investigations and things like that that will be you know the fact that they have any kind of mental health complication will be weaponized against them their account of um, the events can't be trusted that they no longer have credibility especially that happens all the time in the justice process ella could i just come in there one very very important point something that the women figure pushing for is this point that Deepa raised. I think it's really, really important. So the education, we want uh, gender-based violence to be in the curriculum of medical students, of co-trainees. We want that education to start very in schools, actually, right from the beginning. We, we want this um, education and training to be a, a, a co-part of 
a way of tackling this. Yes, thank you so much, Bina. And it is so important that that training happens early on. The question that I asked you, Deba, was you give advice, you give free advice to women who are being sexually harassed in the workplace. These women also need mental health support from these different services that are not integrated. Yeah, they're often just sent around the houses. They've contacted loads of different organisations. They're relying on free support as well. We obviously, you know, so it's charity support. So we, it's never going to be the same as having having sort of a dedicated person who's there to look after you there's just there's just simply no resource for it um and it's devastating it's it's just absolutely devastating to their lives that also has a massive impact on their mental health um the fact that they have to repeat their story over and over and over it it just it makes it just makes the whole situation worse for them i i really don't blame women who just don't want to come forward at all i really really don't blame them I never sort of encourage anyone to do anything they don't want to. I'm just there to support them in the decisions and give them the information and the support and the advice. And they are all heroes for even entertaining it or trying to do any of those processes, um, especially the legal process, you know, which is entirely optional. You know, you don't have to do that process at all if you don't want to. And any woman who's doing it is remarkable because it takes so much strength so much mental fortitude especially after what they've gone through thank you to dr bina rajkumar dr saeed ali and deepa saeed for coming onto the podcast and speaking so openly if you'd like to find out more about women and mental health please visit our website at www.rcpsych.ac.uk go to the members page then select special interest group then women and mental health Thank you for listening to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchant.